0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, and we will be looking at the Old Testament reading from Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 24, the Epistle text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's verses 13 through 18, and then the Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, and there is a clear theme with all three texts, the idea of the day of the Lord, although we can certainly talk about how the Old Testament may not fit in as nicely as is intended. So we'll look at these three texts together, and we're going to start with that Amos 5, 18 to 24 reading. I'm going to read the whole text for you here to start with. Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Why would you have the day of Yahweh? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So our reading is from one of the prophets of God. This particular prophet by the name of Amos is one of what we would call, what we would consider to be the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. And again, just as a a reminder, they're considered minor prophets, not because they're small or insignificant, but because their writings are shorter. So you've got the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then you've got the minor prophets like Amos and Obadiah. And so that's the distinction between the two. Amos is the prophet of God to his people in Israel and also Judah from roughly the 792 BC range until 740. And so he serves in that role, speaking God's word to his people in that time. And in the first couple of chapters, it was judgment against the nations, speaking of many, including both Judah and Israel. And then as you continue going... Into chapters 3 through 6, it gets very much more focused on particularly the nation of Israel. And in the chapter that we are in today, chapter 5, it began with a lament. So sorrow over the land of Israel. But then uh, Amos the prophet calling God's people to seek Yahweh. And what we have ultimately then with our chapter, our verse... verses 18 to 24, is what will happen to Israel because even though they were exhorted right there to repent and to seek the Lord, uh, so my subtitle over chapter 5 is Seek Yahweh and live, even though they're exhorted to do that, they don't. There is no repentance in Israel, and instead what we end up with is letting justice roll down, which doesn't mean necessarily what many would think when they hear the phrase. So we're going to look at this together in context, and that's your general context. It starts with this word, woe. Uh, Woe introduces a a major negative in the, the text. You don't want to have a woe of the Lord spoken upon you. This means something terrible, something awful is going to come. So woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. That's an interesting thing for us to stop immediately and consider. What is, in this text, the day of Yahweh a reference to? We, almost immediately in the Christian church today, and for very good reason, we hear that phrase and we take it to the judgment day. We take it to the day when Jesus will return, and that's what we're going to be reading about in our first Thessalonians reading. On that day, Christ will return. The dead will be raised. Those who have not yet died, again, our our epistle text, will be caught up, gathered up together to be with Christ. And we will be brought before the judgment throne of God, where we will have to give an account of ourselves for our deeds. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, even though our deeds don't measure up, His do. And so we can simply... Praise the Lord that day for what he has done for us in Christ, that we are forgiven of all of our sins. And because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of all that he has done for us, we get to enter paradise even though we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Unfortunately, there will be those who refuse to believe, who continue to stand in rebellion against the Lord, even to that last moment. That's going to be the gospel text. And so for those when they come before the judgment throne of God, they do not receive the gift of everlasting life in paradise. They have cast off the forgiveness. They have muddied the name of Christ. And so instead, they receive the judgment of God. Amos chapter five, doesn't read as well if we try to read it as Judgment Day, Christ's return, Judgment Day, Second Coming. It reads cleaner if instead we simply read it as a day of judgment that God will bring. And so in the context, what would that be? That would be a reference to 722 BC when God uses the Assyrian army to destroy the rebellious nation of Israel. That's the dark day that we really want to make the connection to here with this Amos five text, because what, well, I mean, as we look to, to this idea in verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. I mean, let's pause, Let's, let's look at both. So if this is the Assyrian judgment, uh, one where God judges Israel using a foreign nation and, and destroys his own kingdom, worldly kingdom. If this is that, woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Woe to you who are looking forward to that day. That's fitting, right? It would not make sense to look forward to God coming and destroying your land. And then, uh, the, the last clause of the verse, verse 18, it is darkness and not light. Those are set those are as opposites there. It is not a day that has both darkness and light. It is just a day of darkness. That fits again with the destruction that would come upon the nation of Israel in 722 BC. So we see that judgment day of God fits. But as we take the the opportunity then to put the second coming of Christ, the, the final judgment day, into the text, does it fit? Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Woe to you who want Jesus to return. That doesn't fit. In fact, we are taught in Scripture, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, we are taught to pray for Christ's return. Jesus makes the promise in that verse that he is coming soon, and we, the church, respond by saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then John concludes the entire book, and what ends up being the entire Bible, by saying the, what is it, the grace of the Lord be with you, or the peace of the Lord be with you, amen. It's the second to last verse in all of Scripture. So that would not be fitting here, as well as, as we look at that clause again, it is darkness and not light. Christ's return, the second coming of Jesus, will be both. As I described before, for those who have faith in Jesus, the Judgment Day is a day of light. It is a day when we get to enter paradise. But for those who have rejected him, it is indeed a day of darkness. We see both. And as we then focus on the the line in between that we ignored for now, why would you have the day of Yahweh? Christian, why do you want Jesus to return? We can answer that question. There will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain, there will be no more tears, there will be no more death. I and mean, these are wondrous things. We long for the day of Yahweh to come. Why would you have the day of Yahweh in reference to Assyria destroying Israel? Why would you want that day to come? And so again, as we, we come back to that, that is fitting. And that's why we want to view chapter 5 of Amos, in that light. Now it can, as we just did, it can be a wonderful opportunity for us to think of the day of judgment and to have those conversations. But our focus here is on God's judgment. Verse 18, one more thought here is, why would you have the day of Yahweh? As as you think of what the people at that time may have been thinking, because here they're being described as desiring it, right? So why? Why were they looking forward to this day? And this gets into that false notion that you see all the way into the New Testament, all the way up until Pentecost. I guess we don't technically see it up until Pentecost, but we see it even after the resurrection. The last moment that we see it is just before the Ascension. The expectation was that God's Messiah The one he would send to deliver his people would be a military kingdom, a military champion sent to establish Israel again as the power of the world. The good old days, the glorious days, and even better, perhaps, than all of those had ever been. And we see that, right? You read the first chapter of Acts. What do the disciples say to Jesus after the resurrection? Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And that's not the point. They've missed it. Jesus gives them the mission of sharing the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven. So, we can see what's going on here with verse 18. Verse 19 then gives a very vivid description. So this day of judgment, when Assyria comes to destroy Israel, is not a good day. This is not a good thing to to look forward to. And what's it going to look like? What will it be like? Well, you get two illustrations, and they give you the same picture. So imagine being chased by a lion. And how terrible that is. And how it might be racing through your mind the concern, the idea that you're about to be devoured. And somehow, somehow you manage to give the lion slip. You get away from him. Whew, the relief, you think you've made it. And then you look up and you see the bear standing on its hind legs ready to fall upon you. And the second picture, very similarly, the man comes from working in the field. He's worked hard. He's labored. He thought he could come into the home and rest. And so he puts his hand against the wall just to relax for a moment. And he didn't see the serpent. The snake bites him. He's struck down. So the image of Assyria coming and destroying Israel, Israel may think that they can flee. They may think they can escape God's judgment and his wrath. But even if they try, try as they might, they won't. And you can see that in some of the other uh, works of the prophets as well. Um, I believe it's Hosea and Isaiah both talk about similar topics of, of Israel trying to escape to Egypt. Um, and, And meeting their demise there, or even on the way there, at one point it's described. So there is no rest. There is no avoiding the judgment of God. So verse 20. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And so again, the day of Yahweh, as we look forward to Christ's return, is a day that has both darkness and light both gloom and brightness. Verse 22 and really through 23, the same repetition, well, 21 through 23 is the same thing repeated. God is going to take all of the things that he has commanded his people to do, and he's going to tell them he wants nothing to do with them. This is a full-fledged disowning Of God's people. So what are the events? Feasts, assemblies, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, songs, melody of the harp. What are the the verbs or the, the things of God? Hate, take no delight. I will not accept. I will not look upon. I will not listen. Those are strong phrases coming from Yahweh. So let's look at these a little more closely. What were the feasts? What feast did Israel celebrate? Why did they celebrate them? And there were several different feasts that they were to celebrate. These were their holidays, as you would think of your calendar today, and how you and your family would celebrate and mark Christmas together, and Easter, and even a day like Thanksgiving. So they have several of their own. There is the... The feast that marks the beginning of their year, Um, the Jewish people today call that Rosh Hashanah. Uh, There is the Day of Atonement, uh, which is now called Yom Kippur. There's the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. There's Hanukkah, there's Purim, there's Passover or Unleavened Bread. And then there's the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost or the Harvest Celebration. So you've got seven different regular feasts that they celebrated Mm -hmm. and marked throughout the year. And several of these, to my recollection at least, are week-long celebrations that mark different occasions. So you think of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. It's a week-long celebration, remembering how God delivered them from the land of Egypt. You think of the Feast of, of Booths. Or tabernacles, which does celebrate the harvest, but it also is a reminder to God's people of the time that they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their rebellion against God. And so it's a warning as well as a celebration that they would remember who God is, they would remember what he's done for them, and they would be called to be faithful. And so those are a couple of examples of these feasts, these celebrations that are supposed to mark the things of God. And here he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And the answer to the question of why is going to be the same throughout all of this. The people of God have rejected him. They don't believe in God any longer. They've rebelled against him. They've, they celebrate other pagan gods one of whom is actually named in the verse immediately after our text. We didn't get there, but in verse 25, we well, I guess 26, sorry, we would have read, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness O house of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Says Yahweh, whose name Is the God of hosts. So I guess verse 27 there very specifically does answer the question of which day of the Lord are we talking about here? Uh, It's the day where they are cast into exile. But it is for their pagan practices, it's for their rejection of God himself, that he has abandoned even the things he gave them to do. They're doing these things, we use the phrase going through the motions, in a sense that's what they're doing in some ways. In other ways, they've simply replaced Yahweh, like Israel did with the golden calf in Exodus 32. Here, Yahweh had just rescued them from Egypt, and they respond by having Aaron make this golden staff, a statue of a calf that they can worship instead. They even try to call it Yahweh, they make a God of their own liking, and they put it in the place of God. And so these people have taken their pagan gods, their pagan practices, they've taken their, their false kings that they never should have had in the first place because they were to trust in God alone as their king, and they have placed these in, they have subbed them in to the role of Yahweh himself. And actually, that's very fitting with the First Thessalonians text. First Thessalonians is where you learn of the Antichrist, although not our text today. Anti in Greek means instead of or in place of. So the Antichrist, according to Scripture then, is any one or anything that we put in the place of Jesus Christ. If we take Jesus out of the picture, if we sub something in to the place where Jesus is supposed to be, We have made an antichrist. And that's the same picture that's going on here in the the Amos text. They have, they're still doing burnt offerings. But it's not to Yahweh. It's not for forgiveness. They are still doing the feast, but they're not remembering what God did for them. So you have the feasts, you have the assemblies, That is the call that they would gather together as the church. And those feasts actually were bookended often by assemblies. So the whole congregation of Israel came together on the first and the last day. They worshiped the Lord together. And we have that command as the New Testament church also. In the New Testament, we are called the ecclesia. That is the Greek word for a church, which is just a, it's a compound Greek word in a sense. Um, it takes the word for being called out. Well, it takes the word for being called, and it puts the word out with it. So the ecclesia is the the calling out. It is separating us from the world around us. And when you do that, when you separate us out of the world, you are gathering us together. So the church is calling us out, but also gathering us together. And then we also have Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, Where We are told to not neglect the gathering, but rather, as we continue to gather together, that we would encourage one another, and all the more so as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. So, God has despised their feast. He does not take delight in the church gathering. These are things he commanded, and now he rejects. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, these kinds of things were for the forgiveness of sins before Christ was offered up on the cross as the sacrifice for all forgiveness. Before that, it was these. And so God is now even not accepting these. He's not looking upon them. He has cast them off. And then lastly, also there's songs. So we are commanded in Scripture many times in the Old Testament even uh, that we would praise the Lord. And God has said he will not listen to their songs because he's not the referent of their songs. And we run into this trouble today. A lot of our songs um, that are so popular even in churches, you when you stop and you read the words, it's really hard to connect them to Christ. They might mention God, but they can be so generic, uh, so so empty in their their words that it leaves you wondering okay what god am i actually singing the song to now because we sing them to the lord he does know our hearts but it's just a a picture that can help us see what might have been going on then Uh, the the general language of a song could allow for it to be abused and they were abusing their their well, the psalms were their hymnal at that point. So they were abusing their hymnal. They were abusing their, their psalms, which were supposed to praise Yahweh. But they had turned them into songs for, again, others. The last note here then is verse 24. And we might hear, let justice roll down and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We might think that this is God calling the people to be just and right. And there are times, that's certainly a prophetic theme of the Old Testament, but this is not that. In this context, as you read 18 all the way through 27, there can be no doubt. This is God's judgment. So let God's justice, let God's judgment roll down like water. Let his righteousness, his perfection, flow like an ever-flowing stream. So... I think we have the image sometimes of a fire hose in our culture, you know, it's you're receiving so much information, it's like you're being hit with a fire hose on full blast and it just keeps coming. But picture that in in this picture here for judgment instead. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. And these people had rejected the idea of a true Messiah who would come for them. They had rejected following the Lord altogether. And so god's judgment does come upon them within depending on which year of amos's life he wrote this text within the next 20 to you know probably 50 years this day comes i know that was a hard note to leave off on but it, it leads us well into our epistle reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, that there is no salvation outside of Christ, but in Christ there is salvation, and that's what this text is about. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So in our text here, we have another view of the day of Yahweh. Although this, this time it's the day. It is the final day, the last day when Christ returns. That's our text That's our focus in the epistle. And it's also going to be the focus of the gospel reading. So you can see the connection of the three um, as they put them together. But if you were trying to really fit the text together, we might have picked a different Old Testament reference. As there are other Old Testament references that do point to the last day, to the return of Christ, instead of just to the judgment of that moment. But again, it gives us, as we talked about with that text, a good flexibility, the opportunity to see the whole of Scripture and a more more general context. So, best construction. I don't think this is is a bad set of texts to put together. Um, it's good for us to study God's Word, uh, and this, even though they're different days that are referenced, it's a blessing to us to hear. So, as we look at this First Thessalonians text. Paul, who's the author of this, writing to the church in Thessalonica, and, and that church very specifically took to heart the message of Jesus Christ that he would be coming soon. I mean, this is this is the church that had stopped working, and so Paul has to write to them and tell them, you know, if, if any of you will not work, neither will he eat. You can understand what they were thinking, though, right? Jesus, your Lord, the God who has... Who has been raised from the dead just told you just told the church he was going to be coming soon and so when the thessalonians heard it they were excited and for good reason but some of them started you know bringing it up and you can picture the conversation what do we need to plant a crop this year for jesus is coming back soon why waste that time Let's just enjoy the last few days, and then Jesus will come back, and we get to be with him forever. It'll be great. You can see the picture. We won't be here for the harvest. It's not necessary. Instead, the picture we end up getting from Scripture and from Paul's encouragement is that we continue to serve on. Jesus may indeed come back yet today, and if he does, wonderful. We will rejoice. But he may not come back today, so let us serve our neighbor as we wait that really becomes the the ongoing role of the church that we serve our neighbor we love our neighbor we share christ with our neighbor so paul does not want christians to be uninformed about all that is coming to happen and this is true of our day today just as much as i'm sure it was then there are so many false beliefs about what is going to happen outside of the church You know, as you think of ideas like reincarnation, that when you die, if you're good, you come back as something better. Uh, Ultimately, a cow is apparently the best you can get to be. If you are bad, you come back as something lesser. If you're really bad, you might be an insect. So that's one of those ideas that are out there. But we have these even within the Christian church. The Christian church's understanding of the end of time is pretty lacking, and there's so many different ideas that are taught, and they're all over the board. They're all over the place, and they don't—they don't do justice to God's word. And and this First Thessalonians text ends up being this reading that we have today ends up being a part of that. Uh, this this text gets used uh, by those who are premillennialist, those who believe. Um, in dispensational theories, these texts are used by them to say, to support their teaching of the rapture, which is an idea that you've probably heard of. The rapture is the teaching that at a specific moment in time, Jesus Christ will return and he will gather to himself all those who believe in him. So you can hear the, the similarities to chapter four here. But that in and of itself is not the last day. Those who are left will remain behind for a period of time. And there's different opinions on how long that period of time is before Christ finally comes again and at that point brings about the judgment. So the Left Behind series was a huge popular Christian uh, bookseller and even a couple of movies came out of it back in what maybe the 90s i read some of those when i was a kid they made a series for children as well as for adults they were fairly short chapter books not hard to read they were engaging stories but that ends up being about all they were is stories they don't end up fitting with the fullness of what god teaches in his word Uh, and so the the lutheran church has has rejected that series and, and that idea of premillennial or dispensational theology instead when we talk about the revelations 1000 year reign of Christ we we take it to be the time between his crucifixion and or or you could say his resurrection and his second coming that it is a period of time that we are in now even as we speak whereas both premillennial post-millennial, believe that that thousand years is a very specific time period and certain things have to happen either before it or after it, hence the pre and the post labels. A is the Greek negator, so we don't believe in a literal, a specific thousand years. So this text is one of the supporting, the major supporting players in that conversation, um, but we're going to look at it for what it is. I mean, Paul is using this text to encourage Christians. He wants them to know what's going to happen about those who are asleep and we all know people who are asleep this is the reference to the church triumphant all those in the faith who have gone before us we all have them we all know these people Paul does not want us to grieve as others grieve who don't have any hope our hope is in Jesus Christ It's in the fact that He has died for us to forgive us. He rose again to give us new life. We have hope because He has promised us that we get to live with Him forevermore in a place with no suffering or death or pain or tears. It is paradise. Quite literally, it is everything that we might imagine a paradise would be, and then some, because our mind knows nothing without sin. And it will be without sin. So it's hard for us to even begin to comprehend what paradise will be like. But that is our hope, is that we will be there. Our brother who died, or our, our grandparent who died, who, has, who had faith in the Lord, who has faith in the Lord. We shouldn't talk about them in the past tense. They're still God's children. They will live with him forever. We will see them again. We can't really speak to what our relationship to them will be in heaven other than that we will be brothers and sisters in Christ When we get to paradise, there's not really a need for our mother to be our mother any longer So I don't know what that relationship will be like fully but we'll be there We'll be there together and we'll be there with Christ And that's going to be a wondrous thing and so Paul is trying to share this hope of a resurrection with the church, as opposed to those who don't have it. There were teachings then at that time, there were atheistic kind of teachings. I mean, that's a that's a Greek phrase in and of itself, A, the negator again, and theos is the Greek word for God, so um, no God. Literally, an atheist is someone who believes there is no God. Although, interestingly enough today, atheists seem to hate God in too many cases. So those may not really be atheists. They might be more agnostic. That there is a God that can't be known is what agnostic means. Um, Again, A, Greek, and gnosko, to know. So a God that can't be known is what an agnostic is. So anyway, whether they're atheistic or agnostic, Or if they were in that, those are people who would believe in essentially no ending, no afterlife. And so when you die, you just become part of the earth again, and that's it. It's done. Those people have no hope. But really, neither do those who who believed in, at that time, some of the Greek mythology. There was nothing there. And so Paul doesn't want us to grieve like that. Some of you have been through that. Some of you have grieved those you know who rejected the Lord. You know what it means to have no hope in those instances. And, and so Paul is encouraging us away from that. He wants us as Christians to mm-hmm. have hope, to know what is coming. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep that's the focus of this text not on a rapture not on the how but that God has made us a promise and that God is going to keep his promise to us he will raise us from the dead he will bring us to be with himself that is truly a beautiful thing it is a thing that we we can't fully comprehend but At the same time, we know there is nothing better. This is what leads Paul to say, to live as Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain. Because he knows that he will be with Christ in paradise. He has that hope. And it motivates him in all that he does. It motivates how he lives his life each and every day. Verse 15, um, Paul speaks about an inspired word of God, as they have received this from the Lord himself. And then he goes on to say, those who are alive, those who are left until the coming of the Lord, which is potentially a reference to us. We don't really know. Again, Christ could come back today. Christ may wait a thousand more years. We just don't know. So this could be us. This is Revelation twenty two twenty 20 again, amen. Come Lord Jesus. He is coming soon And so we as the church pray that we pray for his return and we wait for his return and if we're still here If we're still alive when Christ returns then this verse applies to us We won't precede those who have fallen asleep That is every Christian who has come before us everyone who trusted in Christ the Messiah the Savior That includes Old Testament. They didn't know Jesus, but those who faithfully trusted in the Lord that he would send a Messiah. Those who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah who would save them. Those who held to the things of God. Those people are saved in Christ just as much as you and I are saved in Christ. And so we rejoice with them. We'll get to meet them someday too. Um, And we can look forward to that. But what he's saying here is we aren't somehow greater or more important than them. Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime because we are the greatest generation or something of that nature. Jesus comes back when he comes back because it is the time that God has allotted. God decided this a long time ago. And he did so for whatever reason he has in his mind. If we look at the book of Revelation, Around chapter 7, we would hear that um, it has probably something to do with until all the, the saints have been sealed in baptism. But we don't know when that is. I mean, that makes it sound like God knows, which he would. He would in his foreknowledge. He would know everyone who would ever believe in him. And so when the last of those people is born and baptized, maybe that's when Christ's return happens. Or sometime shortly thereafter. But that's a whole bunch of hidden knowledge of God stuff that we really can't answer and speak to. All we know is that we won't go first. Those who have already died, they will go before us. It's in order. So Christ first. And then those who have died in Christ. And then us. Or whoever's still alive, which may or may not be us. Verse 16 on this, then, gives a little bit of a picture of how. And it's a baffling picture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. We saw that in the Old Testament reading. It was just after our reading in Amos chapter 5, verse 27, that Yahweh... The God of armies, the God of hosts, is his name. So the God of armies. And here we have this picture of heaven opening up and Jesus coming down with a cry of command, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet blast. And trumpets are blasted, they're sound of war. And this is incredible. This is an overwhelming picture of what God is going to do on the last day. And while for those who don't believe in God, they would be caused to tremble in fear at this event. For those of us who do believe in the Lord, this is something to look forward to. I, mean, I can tell you from reading the Left Behind series when I was a kid that I was afraid of every loud sound I heard outside because I thought it was the trumpet blast on the last day and Christ was coming back and I was terrified. I'm so glad I'm not anymore. If I hear a trumpet blast outside and it happens to be the Lord's return... Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I look forward to it. I wonder how long I was afraid of that. Oh, well. So Christ comes, the dead are raised, and then, verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up to them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is not to suggest that living in the clouds is permanent. This is the picture some Christians have, right? They teach that we will live in almost a disembodied state, just spirits, maybe even becoming angels, and we hang out in the clouds with God. That kind of teaching is all over out there, um, especially in the, the art and pictures of the church more so probably the cartoony stuff that you get later in, in time, but those teachings have, have real no, really no basis. We have scriptures talking of a new heaven and a new earth, um, just as there is a current heaven, a current earth that will pass away. That's, I think, Second Peter chapter 3 is one of those places Revelation talks about it as well, as does uh, a location late in Isaiah's prophecy, I think chapter 65, 66, the last couple chapters, you can read a little bit about it there also. The picture we have of paradise is actually a new heaven, a new earth, God's creation, and our body and soul knit together by the Lord himself, raised from the dead, perfect, without sin, and that we are somehow serving him and worshiping him and with him, sharing a heavenly banquet with him. It's a beautiful picture when we put the fullness of it together in Scripture, even though we can't really see it, even though we don't know fully what it's gonna look like. God is the source of all things good. Without him there is no good, and in paradise we are with him. You get to be with the one who does all the good in this creation, and that is a gift. A gift indeed. So, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't do what I did when I was a kid and fear Christ's return. You don't have to grieve in the same way as those who have no hope. Instead, we can encourage one another. We can build one another up. We can continue to point one another to Christ's return, to the fact that we get to live forever, that God himself has forgiven us and saved us. Such a different picture than our Old Testament text, isn't it? So we turn to our gospel text, a reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. All kinds of caution with understanding this parable. Uh, So let's jump to the point of the parable. And then we'll double back because this is a Bible study. So we'll dig in. Um, But the primary point, when you come to a parable, you want to find the primary point. What does this parable of Jesus teach us about his kingdom? What is his aim with this parable? It could be there's other connections. Could be other good stuff to talk about. But that's what you always want to focus on with the parable. What does this teach me about the kingdom of God? Or a little more specifically, uh, we can replace that word kingdom with the word reign. What does this teach me about the reign of God? R-E-I-G-N. His reign over his creation. What it looks like for him to be king over us. And so in this particular text, the distinction is being made between those who are ready and those who aren't. And we see this right in the new testament we see this theme from jesus that there are those who are awake who are alert who are watchful for his return and there are those who aren't and so the point here is we want to be we want to honor the groom jesus when he comes but also we want to be ready for when he returns we don't know the day or the hour So we shouldn't live our lives with uh, these dangerous kinds of mindsets. So, for example, I, you know, Jesus isn't going to come back in my lifetime. So I can, I can put faith to the side for now. I've got 50 years to go, you know, I'll be around for a while. I can take faith more seriously when I'm older. Young people think that way a lot, unfortunately, and it often takes tragedy to change their mind. That's an example um, of the of the danger that we face here, that we can be caught sleeping, because when you do that, your faith is in danger. You're in danger of shipwrecking your faith, to use a New Testament phrase. Um, you're in danger of, of losing your faith altogether and falling away from Christ. And so we are called not to do that we're called to always be alert always be ready for his return this is not to say that you shouldn't sleep you know never take a nap that's not what it means it just means to live your life ready for christ to return because the reign of god well, jesus would say is already here and he did say that but the full reign of god over creation can come at any moment so be prepared live your life as though it could happen now so as we dig into the text what's going on here what's happening in this parable so we've got the five virgins who are faithful the five who aren't so we've got 10 virgins total Uh, 10 is a good number for completeness oftentimes in scripture so we could make use of that number here this is the the completeness of creation some of them are waiting for their Savior. Some of them are not ready for their Savior to come. Um, that they are virgins. Probably don't want to read too much into that one either here. Um, again, the, this parable, for that to fit the parable is helpful. So this is a reference to just the wedding celebration of their culture, and that these these young ladies would have been celebrating with the, the couple. Um, And so that's about as much as we probably want to do with that word in this text in particular. Uh, And so the bridegroom is another term. It's an older term that used to be used a lot, even in our society, for the groom himself. So the bridegroom is the groom. We just, I guess, shortened it and dropped the word bride at some point from it. So the bridegroom could come at any time. And when he comes, the virgins are supposed to be ready so that they can accompany him and go to the feast. What we do know of Jewish wedding culture at that time, customs, is that the wedding celebration usually lasted a week. So you want to be at that feast, right? I mean, a a wedding today, you have a reception. And yeah, they're fancy oftentimes and, and way overpriced. But It's one meal. At that time in that culture, it lasted longer, which is why in John, the first miracle of Jesus, the wedding feast at Cana, it's why they ran out of wine. It was an embarrassment to them, but they didn't have enough to provide for the whole week, for the whole celebration. They ran out. They ran short. Now, as we look to this particular text, is there more to it than that? Well, it seems to be but I don't have a whole lot of evidence here for you. I don't have a lot of come, well, I don't have a lot to come alongside of of anything here to really present to you. I can tell you what I've heard before, and I've looked and looked and looked to find where I heard this from in the past, and I've not been able to find it. I have heard before that in this particular text, what's happening here is that they had this custom that essentially the the groom would when he was just about ready for the wedding, he would tell his, his bride to be this information and she would gather her wedding party together, getting ready for the feast. The husband would go and make the final preparations. And when he was ready, he would return. And it almost became like a, a game in the family uh, for the husband to return whenever he felt like coming back. Uh, and so the, the, the bride was to be prepared at any moment for her husband to come. I don't I don't know if that's true. Again, because I've had so much trouble finding it since it sounds nice. It sounds like it fits the context, but I don't have the evidence. I don't have the the support to back it. So what we stick to again is what we know, and that is a little bit of Jewish culture, customs from the time. But primarily what's the point of the parable trying to address? and that is what you're going to get in the following verses these virgins these young people who were supposed to be ready they weren't they did all fall asleep right in verse six they sorry verse five they become drowsy and they fall asleep because the the bridegroom didn't come early enough they were waiting for a long time and we see that too with the idea that the, the wise took with them extra oil you know they had a flask with them which could be small could be large no no idea here uh, but we have an oil burning lamp and if you've ever used an oil burning lamp even some of our churches use candles that are oil burning you know that as the the flame burns the oil slowly is consumed and so the the extra oil means that they can burn their lamps longer they are prepared they are better prepared than their neighbor is in this situation They are ready, even though they don't know when the bridegroom is coming. Even though we don't know when Jesus is coming, they're ready for him to come. That's the point. That's the aim. That's the goal here. And then at midnight, there's a warning issued that the bridegroom is on his way, that he's going to be there soon. And panic sets in for five of them. They're not ready for his arrival. They're, they don't have what they need. And so they, they ask for extra oil. Their oil is, is running out or has run out, just about out. And they want to be able to see. They want to have, well, this is good. They want to have a light to their path, which is what we know God's word to be, right? So part of our preparedness would be to remain in God's word. Uh, that's a, a good and faithful thing for us to do. We don't want to read much into the rejection. We don't want to read too much into the the five wise ones saying no to the five foolish ones. Yes, could they in this parable have spared some of their oil? Sure. Could they have given all of their oil? Sure. Could they have shared lamps? Probably. It's a parable. It doesn't fit perfectly. (laughs) We want to focus on the primary point. They can't give up what they have they can't give up their preparedness because then they would no longer be prepared they could not prepare for these other ones these other ones had to prepare for themselves and they didn't the focus of this parable is on christ's return it is on the day when christ would come back And gather us to be with himself, bringing us into that heavenly banquet he is preparing for us in his paradise. And we know from the judgment what scripture speaks, that when we come before the judgment throne of God, at that point, you know, it's too late. You're either in or you're out. The door is either open to you or it's not. Christ has forgiven your sins and welcomed you in, or the Lord has looked at you and said he doesn't recognize you because you would not confess his son, Jesus Christ. There is a feast that the Lord has prepared for all people. He wants us to be there. He's invited us to be there. And yet not all are prepared. Not all are ready. And so when the Lord returns, what will he find? Jesus speaks that way in the Gospels. Will he find faith on the earth? We are called to be faithful. We are called to be ready. We are called to be prepared. We are called to be alert and awake at all times. That is to fix our hope on the promise of Jesus and to live as though his promise is real, as though it's true, because it is. We do not know the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean it isn't coming. And as we talked about in our epistle reading today, this isn't a bad thing. This is not a thing for the Christian to fear. This is good news. When Christ returns, it will be bliss. Can I use that word in this context? It will be better than anything we could imagine. Beyond compare. We will be with our Savior. We will see him face to face. Amen. God yeah.